0: Ed Robertson, welcoming you to TV Confidential. Radio talk show about television. Amy Stock will join us in our second hour. Amy Stock, the actress, also known as Lisa Alden on Dallas, Matt Dillon's daughter in the Gunsmoke reunion movies, and Bill Preston's hot stepmom, Missy, in the Bill and Ted movies. Amy will be reprising her role as Missy in Bill and Ted Face the Music. Bill and Ted Face the Music, the latest chapter in the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure series. We'll ask Amy what it's like to revisit a character that she hadn't played in 30 years, plus we'll ask her about some of her other movie and TV roles when she joins us in our second hour. We'll be able to stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we will lead off this hour by welcoming author, columnist, and teacher Larry Strauss. Larry has taught high school English in South Los Angeles for nearly 30 years. He has also written more than a dozen books, one of which, The Facts of My Life, he co-authored with his mother, stage and television actress Charlotte Ray. Larry is also an opinion columnist for USA Today, plus he has written for the Huffington Post and The Guardian with the ongoing debate of whether schools should reopen this fall Larry has had several things to say from his perspective as a frontline inner city educator. We'll talk to him about that and more in just a second. Larry Strauss, welcome to TV Confidential.
1: Thank you. Great to be with you.
0: Before we started recording, I was telling you that I have a built-in interest in the subject of distance learning and whether schools should reopen, and even if they don't reopen, the challenges that distance learning has posed for many teachers, regardless of whether they teach high school, secondary school, college, whatever. I, I have a sister who teaches third graders up in San Francisco, and basically her experience was when her school was shut down in March, she basically had to teach two full classroom days a day, starting like at 7, 8 o'clock in the morning and continuing till 7, 7.30 at night, partially because of connectivity, partially because not all of her students have access to computers at the same time. And this is on top of what she had to do as vice principal of the school. Somehow she had to find time to do her vice principal stuff outside of the 13 hour, what became a 13, 14-hour day for her. How does this compare to, say, your experience and that of your colleagues.
1: Well, the thing about high school is some of us spend a lot of time a lot more than the 7 hours or the 6 hours we're paid for every day. Mm-hmm. And there are other people who don't. So, I think the I think the distance learning that that hit us in March exaggerated that where you had some teachers who were who just really disappeared and I think if taxpayers are upset and feel that, and I've I've read this that there's a, it's a sizable uh, number of people polled who said teachers' salaries should be cut at this time, you know, because they don't have to drive to work, not, and essentially they're not babysitting our kids. <laughs> and I'm
0: laughing with you.
1: <laughs> I, I understand this. I understand this view because there's some teachers who don't deserve their salary. They've yeah. not stepped up. And then there are others of us who probably work more hours. Um, You know, we, uh, I mean, you know, reach it. just the amount of phone calls and and even home visits that that we've made. Um, Not to mention the fact that we're, you know, the teachers at my school, we were chipping in to help support a family that was in very serious financial straits they were food insecure. Uh, There is an eviction moratorium, but there are exemptions to that. And, you know, many of the people who live in distressed communities, they don't live in buildings that would be covered by that. They live in someone's garage. They live in someone's converted garage, or they live in bunch of vehicles parked in a lot somewhere that have been converted to housing. And so they're, they are in danger of being evicted. There's no law because they're, they're illegal apartments to begin with. So anyway, some of us definitely worked more hours. It's different. I mean, I will say it's not having to wake up at six o'clock in the morning. I mean, I, I do, but I don't have to. I can do, you know, I can do some of my work. Later, I have more flexibility. I can take a break. There are times in the day when I can, you know, go for a walk with my wife. My wife, was actually a college adjunct, you know, she's teaching from home. I'm teaching from home. I mean, she loves the fact that we're, we're together all the time yeah. now, and it's nice. I, I, I like it too. But the idea that this is easier for us, well, if you're, a, again, if you're a committed educator, it's not easy. It's, first of all, it's not easy because of the frustration. Of not having the same kind of access to your students it's it's sometimes heartbreaking that you can't reach out to them in the same way i i had a student um i actually went into the school a few days ago to pick up some textbooks um to start teaching next week and we were also handing out seniors who had graduated last year who, you know, graduated without us really seeing them. I mean, we kind of saw them at a drive through graduation, but, you know, I got a chance to talk to a few of them from a few feet away, and, and um, you know, it was really nice, but it was sad, too, because that, that was an everyday thing. And it's like, no, I can't come in every day and see you. But, you know, so it's a, it's a little heartbreaking, too. All, I think all of us are very anxious to get back into the buildings. Anyway, it's interesting, the vocabulary of how we even talk about this. You said it, and I say it all the time, when we go back to school or when the school's closed. Or when, essentially, the schools are not closed. It is the buildings are closed. Yeah. Campuses are closed. But you know almost everybody refers to the schools being closed as if we're no longer working or trying to provide education and it reminds me of about 15 years ago the school where i teach was the buildings were condemned which they should have been probably 20 years earlier and we were displaced and there was a there was a time when we thought the school was just going to be closed and that's a whole other story i actually wrote a book a school what is a school here we are we are a school without a building but we're still a school yeah we still exist as an entity as a with a school culture and relationships and expectations like we have all these things without a physical building but it is a very strange and destabilizing experience
0: it's not unlike the very question of what constitutes a church you know little c versus big C. We mentioned in our open, Larry is also a columnist for USA Today. He's written several columns since the outbreak of COVID-19 on such topics as the fundamental question of what constitutes a school. You can follow Larry Strauss on Twitter at Larry Strauss. And it's a very just dovetailing on some of the things you, you said earlier, Larry, is that, you know, yes, a school, capital S school, goes beyond the physical building where classes meet and if I'm hearing you correctly your particular school is going to re- when when classes resume it will resume distance learning correct
1: right okay that would be, that would be um, Tuesday yeah okay all, yeah the our entire school district was uh, we found out last month we were actually making plans I was working with the principal making plans to open the campus uh, in a hybrid situation where we would have 12 to 16 or 18 students depending on the actual physical class the uh, size of the classroom We have some classrooms that are bigger than others mm-hmm. and we were working on the schedule and how this would all work So we were preparing for that But then the decision was made by the superintendent and the school board that we would not Do that not that and it's interesting too because I, in the contract the agreement with the union it says until December thirty first or when school returns to campus. So there, it hasn't been ruled out that we will return to campuses at some point during the fall semester, but almost everybody is talking about it as if it's not gonna as if that's not gonna happen. Including the, the news media. I don't know if that's an assumption on their part or if there's just a lot of confusing information out there. But as of now I would imagine at least for a few months, we will be working remotely.
0: Larry Strauss is on the line with us. Larry has taught high school English in South Los Angeles since 1992. He is also a member of USA Today's Board of Contributors, where he has written several columns uh, since the outbreak of COVID-19 on the matter of distance learning, the misguided federal pressure to reopen campuses across the country, the fundamental question of what constitutes a school and other topical issues. You can follow Larry Strauss on Twitter at Larry Strauss. Um, what led you to become a teacher, and is there a particular reason why you chose to concentrate on inner school education?
1: That's, it's, just, I, it's, it's funny. It's hard for me to even remember why. I, <laughs> other than, well, <laughs> two things things happen in my 20s I was a, I was just trying to make it as a writer mm-hmm. I I wrote some television I actually wrote the first generation Transformers show including the I was one of the writers on the movie that they made mm-hmm. the animated one not the big budget Hollywood film made years later but uh when the Transformers first hit the airways, I, I was one of the writers and I was right I'd written books also I was I was trying to be a novelist and and uh And do all these things. And actually, I had um, one of my novels called Fake Out. I think it's still in print. It was optioned by the Columbia TriStar, Sony Pictures, and uh, it was like a big thing. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was brought in as one of the executive producers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they paid a lot of money for it. And I remember, first of all, I had the misimpression that suddenly I was. You know, I was like going to be this hugely successful writer, which was a little premature (laughs) at that moment. But, you know, we're all, I think we're all, all all of us in the arts are like, we're all prepared for that big success. Yes.
0: I'm not, I'm nodding my head as I'm listening to you.
1: And, and, uh, anyway, but I, I had kind of an existential crisis when that happened. And I thought, I want more than this. Mm -hmm. I want more than to just write and, you know, get paid for it. And, um, and then I, th- I was also, at the time, I, I used to supplement my income by tutoring
0: kids. So
1: mm-hmm. I was already kind of an educator. And I remember one day, I think I was tutoring a kid in the library, and some other kids were, you know, clowning around and making a lot of noise. And I went over and talked to them. And something happened in that moment <laughs> where I thought, oh, wow, you know, I think I, I think I could actually work well with kids and, you know, get them to listen to me, not, you know, being firm but not antagonistic, and I kind of and you know the thing is like young people we're well, always ser- young people are always searching for their talent. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of them, some of them feel they already have it, but I, I find that a lot with my students, like they don't know what they're good at, they don't know what they can do, and so I was still kind of searching. I knew I was a I could write. I knew I, I people had told me I was pretty good at it, but. Uh, But suddenly I thought, wow, I could be a teacher. And so when I had this existential crisis, I thought, I think I want to teach. I mean, I want to continue to write, but I I, I think I want to teach. I want to do something where I'm going to feel like, you know, I'm I'm helping other people. And not just self. Writing can be self-indulgent. I mean, even when as a writer you think I'm doing a great service to humanity writing this book, Mm -hmm. that's probably the most self-indulgent of all. Yep. Thinking,
0: you know, I'm nodding about that, first, that too. <laughs>
1: my words are going to change the world, so so I really I want to put my money where my mouth is. Now, as far as teaching in the inner city, that's where you te- if you if you're in LA, that's where you teach. Like that's where you're going to get your first teaching job. Mm-hmm. It's very rare that somebody take, gets a teaching job in a non-inner city school mm-hmm. in LA, and. And at the time, at the time I was looking for a job, there were there was nothing. There were no jobs. I think there had just been some budget cuts, and I don't know. But it was very hard to get hired. So you took what you could get, and then you know, typically a, a lot of teachers will move from the uh, from the inner city schools. They'll try to move to the more suburban schools mm-hmm. as they you know as they get experience. But I just love where I teach, and I love the kids, and. There was no. I had. I I had offers. I mean, I I teach at Venice High School, which is near where I live, which is by no means. I mean, most of the students are still still below the poverty line, but it is different than being in South LA. I was offered. I teach summer school there for a lot of a lot of summers, and I've been offered jobs over the years, but I have no interest in leaving. I, I will, as I as I tell everybody, I, you know, they're gonna have to carry me out of there either <laughs> either either in a hearse or a straight <laughs> i'm not going anywhere <laughs> so we'll see i mean i i don't know It may get fatigued make it get harder and harder for me to get up in the morning but i just i really love doing it and i haven't reached that point where you know you sometimes you see older teachers who've like gone too long And Mm -hmm. they really can't deal with kids anymore. They just lose their patience. I've seen that where they just, they lose, they don't have, you know, you have to have enormous patience because teenagers will just, they will act so, they're so Mm self-centered. But you have to, you have to say, I love this kid. That's who they are at that moment. It's not about you. It's their, they don't know how to be any better. And uh, they need you to, to not react to their selfishness and stupidity and, they're angst. I mean, they're just they're struggling so much. They're in such a state
0: of crisis. Yeah, if you react every time a kid tests you, you're going to exacerbate a, you're going to exacerbate the behavior and b, you're going to, you're going to end up in a straitjacket because you can't oh, yeah. you've got to learn, you know, the fine line between Which which speaks to one of the things you talk about in one of your recent columns for USA today about how so much of teaching regardless of whether it's high school, middle school, college, whatever, so much of teaching goes on in the in-person in classroom dynamic that you cannot replicate through distance oh. learning.
1: No, you can't. I, although I mean I'm trying to figure out ways right now that we can mitigate this somehow.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think a starting point and actually I read I think I read it in the Boston Globe that Boston is You are our most... student has issued a textbook so we know we know the kids can be on campus but can we get
0: Because they're kids. And
1: yeah, they're kids. I mean, I was when I was there the other day, a girl who was in my class, she graduated two years ago. She was driving her sister, who's a senior this year, you know, in to get her, her books and stuff. And, you know, she's honking. She's, like, dying to talk to me and hey, hey. And then she's got another friend of hers who was also in my class on her phone on a FaceTime. She's like, oh look, it's it's Kyla, it's Kyla and so she hands me the phone, and I'm like looking at it. And she's like, take the phone. I don't have Rona. Come on, take. <laughs> you know, but like, right away, you realize like it's not that kids don't want to follow the rules. But anyway, you. But if you have a if you have a small number of them, you don't have to worry about that stuff. You can maintain all that, and uh, you know. So I'm trying to work with my principal to figure out how do we do that. How do we get the contact with them. And then, you know, sometimes you got to go to their house, too, and talk to them in the doorway. I actually did that. About three other teachers and I, uh, we volunteered to help these parents who made these uh, graduation boxes for students since, you know, they're so disappointing to be a senior last year in high school or college, you know, and so they wanted to do something so they made i don't even know what was in the graduation box but the kids were like so thrilled just to have somebody have their teacher show up in a mask to their doorway and just say hello and a lot of them we ended up standing out in the street talking you know it it took me like the whole day to deliver i don't know 20 of these you know there was such a hunger for the contact and It's so important, and it's uh, it's hard to replicate that over a
0: computer. Larry Strauss is on the line with us. Larry Strauss, opinion columnist for USA Today. Larry has also taught high school English in South Los Angeles since 1992. We are talking about uh, some of the challenges that school campuses across the country are facing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Larry is also the author of more than a dozen books, one of which, The Facts of My Life, He co-authored with his mother, Charlotte Ray. We'll continue our conversation with Larry Strauss when we come back on TV Confidential.
1: Story Salon is Los Angeles' longest-running storytelling venue. We have live shows every Wednesday in Studio City, as well as solo shows, podcasts, CDs, and several books. Los Angeles Daily News calls Story Salon gemstones of narrative, something new, funny, astonishing. Sunset Magazine says... Tales tall, tragic, and tantalizing. All of this makes Story Salon one of the most eclectic entertainment experiences available. You can learn more about us by going to our Facebook page or by visiting our website at www.storysalon.com. Accredited by Guinness World Records, welcome to Archival Television Audio Incorporated. A peerless TV soundtrack archive preserving the audio from television's first three decades, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the golden and silver age of television.
0: For more information, go to atvaudio.com. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk